you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. We're in the end of uh, the book of Colossians. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the baskets there by the seats. And feel free to take one of those with you if you, you don't have one personally and would like to, uh, uh, to have one. In those Bibles, this is on page 1716, and we are reading... Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, through chapter 2, verse 5 today. Here now, this is God's word. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Him we we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that he may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. Rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? Our Father, thank you for this, your word. And for the way that you teach us what it means and how to apply it in our lives. Father, thank you that you gave the Apostle Paul to teach the Colossian church and the Laodicean church and so many in that time and that his words still teach us. And thank you that you have given us this time of teaching now. Will you bless it and strengthen us by your word and by your uh, spirit and by the power of Christ in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I start, let me just ask you, are people cold? Because we can turn on a little bit of heat. Hot. All right, you'll probably get mixed answers there. Feel free, if you ever want to, the, um, uh, the, the, the gauge is right over here, and we can, uh, we can turn that on. Well, for a former engineer and a theologian who enjoys problem solving, there's something of a red herring in this passage. When I sketched out the outline for all of this Uh, sermon series, that red herring jumped off the page at me and I wanted to spend this whole sermon talking about 
rejoicing in his sufferings, Paul says, for his sake, and particularly what, what it means that something might be lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. Because if you're a theologian, you read that and you ask the question, what could possibly be lacking in Christ's work on our behalf? Has Jesus done something that was insufficient to accomplish the purposes, namely of our salvation? But secondly, for the purpose of equipping us, teaching us. And this is a fascinating question, not only for theologians, but if you're a mathematician, you ask the question, one plus one equals two, Jesus plus what equals what we need? Is there something, again, lacking for mathematician? Or maybe the, the exception to this would be those of you who are literature lovers, and, and when you read a passage that pre presents a problem like this, this is the core of the story. There's a problem. It needs to be resolved. Well, this, this problem is worth addressing and worth talking about in certain circles, but if we get caught up here, we miss the main point that Paul's leading us to, and that is, where does Paul point to from this? He says, I'm rejoicing in my sufferings. He's, he's probably in prison at this point. He has suffered physically, emotionally, materially, in every way. He's given up his life for the sake of proclaiming the good news of the gospel, particularly to the Gentiles, that is, those who have not known uh, the presence of God in the temple, the presence of God with his people, the, the regular gathering of, of the festivals in Jerusalem, the, the fellowship that that entails. But these Gentiles have been brought in in massive numbers. Now, now, Gentiles were always being converted to Jews, but just in smaller numbers in the past. But now that Christ has come, there's a mass entrance of Gentiles into this faith. And, and one of the things that was, that was so difficult for that early church was to separate out those things that had been the practices that God gave the people of Israel that were part of their identity, their marked, uh, marked outness for God's sake, to let go of some of those things that God said, those things were just a shadow of the things to come. Those things were given to you so that you could understand better who Jesus is. Even in this passage, we find the mystery of Christ and part of that truth, the mystery of Christ, is that in Christ, many of these older things that were shadows, that were, were typology, kind of instructive, instructive tools that God had used, are going away. And you can imagine the difficulty of a people wrestling with somebody with, with this question of but these have been our identity these have been things that have marked us for so long what do we let go of what do we hold on to and what Paul is saying is that the, that the important thing and why I'm suffering, why I'm giving my life to this is that you understand that all of those things and all of my teaching and all of scripture from the very beginning in God's interaction with his people have been pointing to this central work that is encapsulated in a single person 
that is God who became human, it is Christ. This is a mystery. The the revelation, the prophets from the Old Testament have spoken about how this reconciliation between God and man would happen, how this resolution to the problems of sin and separation from God would be resolved, but, but none of them could fully explain how this was going to happen in the form of an incarnate God dying on a cross so that salvation could come to the whole world. And here's what Paul says, my sufferings, my afflictions, they matter. All right? Not that Christ's suffering was insufficient, but our sufferings, Paul's sufferings, my sufferings, your sufferings, they matter. In the same way, or in a parallel way, not that Christ's work isn't sufficient, his good deeds aren't sufficient to give you everything you need, but your works, your deeds, your life, your love, the things you do matter as well. And so like in math where you have imaginary numbers, concepts that don't make sense, but you need to be able to use them. In, in theology, we have these things that work together that, that for a mathematician, a logician, even a theologian, oftentimes they don't, they don't reconcile like we want them to, but they are true. And so when you look at the story of God's redemption in the Bible, and you say, but I don't understand how there can be so much suffering in the world today and so much pain out there. How can God be present when it seems like he's absent? Paul is speaking just in this very brief statement and saying, you may not understand the fullness of it, but those sufferings matter. And part of the way those sufferings matter is that they matter for the other people around you. Not to the day just look at you and say, wow, you suffer well. I'm impressed by you. I want to be like you. But your sufferings matter for these other people because you are called as followers of Christ to enter into the difficult places in other people's lives and help to bring healing and comfort where there's pain. And bring bring real, felt need, restoration, presence in other people's lives. And, and that matters even for the sake of their salvation. And so Paul's saying that my suffering matters, your suffering matters, Here's what Paul is specifically saying in this passage and through this book, why his suffering matters. He says, because you need to understand who Christ is. You need to be equipped to grow into maturity. You need to understand that the Christian life is not just one of coming in and getting your needs met and going out happy at the end of the service. I thought today's music was wonderful at the beginning. 
It was inspiring. It was, it, was, it was empowering. And music is meant to do that. The worship service is meant to do that. But the worship service is also meant to send us out with a greater understanding, not just of who Jesus is, but of who we are now that we're united with Christ. We've been talking about this multiple times. And at the heart of the book of Colossians, at the heart of all Paul's writing, really at the heart of all Scripture, is this mystery not just in who Christ is, God became human, bring salvation through his sacrificial death on the cross and resurrection, but that God became not just knowable, but united with us in a, 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 a way that is beyond comprehension. In the Old Testament saints, they talked about knowing God and being in relationship with him. God set up a tent in their midst and and that became a a temple later. He's present with them, but never was the conversation that God was in them. Now that doesn't mean that it wasn't true for them, but it certainly means that they didn't understand what that truth could mean. For God didn't just come to dwell in the midst of them in a tent or a temple in a different house. God came to dwell in them. And that is the mystery of Christ. Christ in them. And in that mystery, Christ in you, if you want to see it there, verse 27, end of verse 27, Christ in you. And in that mystery, in that presence of Christ inside of human persons, is our hope of glory. Our hope of glory. Now, when you say glory, some of us think, well, glory is when we get a lot of attention and people love who we are. Glory is when a star is well known and respected. Glory is when things are going well and we bask in the the glory of it. Glory, in this sense, Paul says, is something that is still future. And yet something that we are moving toward and growing into, when he uses the word hope, hope is things that are unseen. Hope is things that we long for, that we want. Hope in this sense is something that is sure and steadfast, sure promise, the hope of glory. But in the meantime, Paul is saying that there is a process that you need to go through And that process is the process of maturing. Verse 28, this is where he goes right next. Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone. By the way, warning everyone, teaching everyone in this context is particularly against false teachers. Those people who want to bring things in from the past that are now made obsolete. And also new things in, ideas and concepts that would distract people from what the truth of Christ is and what the plan God has for their lives. Warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom. Pay attention to that word wisdom. It gives us a hint of where we're going here. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. Earlier he used the words, he goes through the suffering for the sake of his body, that is the church. He's using this metaphor, this illustration of a body growing up. 
And he puts different pieces on the body at different places, different times. We've bounced around a little bit. We know that Christ is the head of this body. We know that each of us play an important function in the body, but we're different parts. Some people are hands, and some people are feet, and some people are internal organs, and some people are, are, are more extremities. Paul says in the book of Ephesians that God gave gifts. In particular, he talks about in these gifts that he gave pastors, teachers, apostles, prophets to equip the body for the growing up. Here's an image that you won't be able to shake from your head. The image of Jesus' church is a little bit like a fully grown head on a very small body. Out of proportion. Like the body is like a a toddler kind of body, but the the head is a fully grown body. This is is an awkward image. But it's also the image of what the church oftentimes looks like in its immaturity. Now, we oftentimes think of, Im- of maturity or immaturity individually. Am I acting mature? Am I acting immature? Don't just stop there. Think about maturity also corporately. Are we functioning as a church maturely? And what does that mean? It means that we're, in, in one sense, working together. That the hand isn't trying to say to the foot, I wish I was a hand. I want to be the hand. I want to be the, the teacher. I want to be the musician. I want to be the, 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 the evangelist. I want to be the one who, by the way, no one, no one in the church that I've heard yet says, I want to be the one who goes and helps my neighbor who is elderly and just had a, 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 a fall cook their dinner and, and help them go to the bathroom. I haven't heard that one, wishing they had that gift. Why don't we have that desire to be that person like we do some of these other things. And it's because we have a misconception of what glory is. The functions of the body include the mundane things of life, the seemingly insignificant things of life. But Jesus tells us that those things are oftentimes the most important things in his family life, in his economy. Those who take the most humble position will have the greatest reward, he says. Do you desire the greater things? That is part of maturity to understand what it is to work together as a body that we're not envying the gifts that God has given somebody else or wanting those gifts that God hasn't given to us but that we delight in the gifts that God has given to us. In this verse, Paul calls himself a minister. And one of the tempting things for any minister to come to this passage and say is that we're all ministers. For the word in the Greek here is deacon, diaconate. It's a a word that we translate servant, but in this case we translate it minister because it applies a little bit more uh, helpfully to to Paul's role here. And at at the same time, we are all servants in Christ's church. 
We are all, in this sense, ministers in Christ's church, called to important, vital functions in coming to the fullness of the body. You might say, well, the foot isn't really important. I know people who have had their foot cut off and they still survive, but that's not the body that Christ is wanting and has planned for his church. It's not an imperfect body, a blemished body. All of us have disabilities in one sense, something that doesn't function quite right in our life, whether it's a physical ability, a physical part of our body, whether it's something even in our thinking, in our mind, and various difficulties, whether it's some type of um, pattern in our life that, that we can't get rid of. Paul talks about the thorn in his side, and I think in one, that that is some, something that he wishes that he didn't have, a disability, a dysfunction in his life. But while God gives us those things, it says he prayed that God would take it away from him, but he realized that God had given it. While God gives us those things, the picture that God gives us for, Christ, for his church and for his body is this fully functional, like the picture, like the statue of King David, the famous old uh, statue from antiquity, that is a perfect human body. That everything is working together correctly. That there's no insignificant part. You can't say, I can do without that toe. But that every part of the body recognizes the vitalness, the essentialness of every other part of the body. And that we would grow up to maturity. Now, some of you are saying, I don't want to grow up, right? For those of you who remember this, Toys R Us just went out of business, but it used to have an advertisement, I want to grow up, I want to be a Toys R Us kid. James Barry's famous novel, Peter Pan, idolizes, idealizes life as a child that never grows up, always on an adventure. The ones who do grow up are the mean ones, the evil ones. Who wants that? Recently, two pastors wrote a book called Adulting 101, responding to the need just for basic life skills in so many college students that they didn't get, writing a check. One student didn't know how to write a check. You go on to bigger things, getting a mortgage, things like that. I, I, I'm interested to see how this book goes. I just ordered it. Do you want to grow into maturity? I remember sitting with a friend of mine and, and when we were in our 20s, and both of us young, uh, aspiring professionals with already significant accomplishments under our belts and just joking about, we, we want to stay immature in every area that we can. This guy is a, an elder in his church, and he just passed up a job to be the old, youngest uh, um, dean of a school of engineering, a tier one school of engineering in the country. We joked about not really wanting to grow up. Do you want to grow up? I, I don't want to grow up altogether. Well, growing up isn't, isn't just becoming boring. In fact, it's not becoming boring at all. It's not whether you pronounce mature as some type of British mature or mature. It's not the, the things that we oftentimes think of when we think of growing up. The Christian life is full of adventure. The Christian life should be 
filled with joy that is found in God. The Christian life is also a growing up into maturity that looks a little bit like this. Let me, let me read to you a few of the ways that Paul describes maturity in various places in his writing. The first thing we found in this passage is maturity is a unity with Christ or a union with Christ and a unity with one another. Maturity means that we're not constantly fighting and bickering like most kids do. Even the best of kids are still prone to that fighting and bickering. And by the way, any of you adults who say you never fight and bicker, either I don't believe you or you don't have any friends. And I'll bet that some people in here don't really have friends. You got tired of the fighting and bickering and you've closed off your relationships so much that you've isolated yourself from true friendship so that you can avoid fighting and bickering. And now you found yourself in a very lonely position. A very lonely position that is not the picture of Christ mature in his body. Now, the answer is not just that you go and find a bunch of friends. The answer is not just to go off and say, hey, I'm, I'm Mike, I wanna be your friend. That doesn't usually end well in making friends. The answer is found in understanding who we are in Christ. The answer is found in some other definitions of what this, uh, this, this, this maturity looks like. Ephesians 4, again, another key passage in this. The answer, the answer to that is finding a, a security a stableness, a steadfastness. Paul describes this way. Um, he gave these apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Right? We've already covered that. For building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith. Right? This is what we're talking about. How we work together, how we live together, how we operate together. The unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of, of God to mature manhood. This is not, by the way, that uh, manhood is more mature than womanhood. It's just the, the, the nature of Greek language here. To mature personhood, we can even say, to the, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, right? We're, 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 we're proportional then. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that... This Hena clause we talked about for the purpose. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful uh, schemes. Now listen, I think that part of the reason that we lack in unity as Christians, that we lack in maturity as individuals oftentimes, and that we lack in maturity as a body is because we get stuck in the, uh, the, the kind of middle school, seventh grade immaturity. Not immaturity, insecurity. 
that every one of us has known at some point in our lives. The insecurity of not being sure if we're loved by another person. The insecurity of not being sure if this friend is really going to stay with us or if somebody else better comes along, they're going to go off and play with them. The insecurity of not knowing if our job is going to last for a long time or if we're going to have enough money to retire by a certain age or if we're going to find a person to marry or if if the person that we are married to is going to stay with us or or oftentimes the the questions that arise, should I stay married to uh, to this other person? The insecurity that creeps into children's mind and I can remember sitting on my bed thinking, do my parents really love me? Are my parents even my parents? You know, those types of thoughts that most of us have had along the way. And that Paul is answering this people with this question that if you are united with Christ, if you are united with Christ, it is not up to the things that you do in your life whether Jesus loves you or not. You see, this was a lie that the, 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 the people, some of the teachers, the false teachers were teaching in Colossae to the people. You got to still do these things. Don't touch that meat. Stay away from that person in this time or stay away from that house that has these things or stay away from that or you still have to go through the process of circumcision. And Paul is saying that those things, those things were pointers to understand who Christ is and how Christ cleans you up, sets you apart, protects you from disease, cuts away the hardness of your heart that is a little bit like cutting away the foreskin of a man or a boy. If you are united with Christ, then that maturity, that maturity brings a security that doesn't say, I don't care what other people think. I don't care what other people do for me. I don't care how I'm my own person. Instead, it says, I have been given this identity and the security and the steadfastness in Christ. I can enter into relationships with a courage Understanding that if I am rejected in that relationship, I have still suffered for the sake of somebody else. Extended my love in a risky way so that somebody else might feel loved. And who are the people who don't reciprocate love? Of course, they're the ones who don't, have never really experienced love. And so if you are doing this type of loving selflessly, Giving yourself, you should expect that that love will not be reciprocated oftentimes. That you need to press on through that period of awkwardness and insecurity. And part of the process of awkwardness and insecurity and making mistakes and making poor decisions is a part of growing into the maturity of Christ or in Christ, this maturity. How do we have this security? It's that our powers of discernment, our powers of discernment, 
I mean, Hebrews 5.14, it's talking about solid food for the mature, solid teaching, these teaching that is difficult, solid food for the mature are for, is for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Here's another mark of maturity, in other words. It's united with Christ. It's steadfast. It's secure. It's not tossed by other things. It is trained. Think of this, the powers of discernment, almost like a superpower that is developed over time by constant practice. Good decisions, bad decisions. Identifying good, identifying evil. In this maturity, in this maturity, that discernment increases over time. That steadfastness, that security increases over time. Now, by this point, you're probably saying, okay, I get that, but how does this happen? Do I just throw myself into difficult situations? Well, the first way is that we need to commit ourselves to the study of Scripture to understand better, more all the time, what it means to be united with Christ. To have union with Christ. That Christ is in us. And that is the subject of our study of this book of Colossians. And we've talked about it in the past. We'll continue to talk about it more. But just know that, that, process, that, that we can never grow into maturity separated from the head. The second thing I want you to see is that this maturing process is a very natural process. Sometimes we think, man, I just need to, I need to be more steady in my prayer life, in my, in my, my, uh, my devotional life. I need, to, I need to do this and practice this more and more. But, but let me ask you this question. Have you ever known a child who just stopped growing? Who just stopped growing? Stayed a child all the time. Apart from fictional characters like Peter Pan, just stopped growing. It is natural to grow into maturity. It requires that we feed and care for our body. That's an important part of it. But, but we have natural urges to eat even the people who have absolutely awful parents, and I've seen some people in, in, uh, in very uh, impoverished areas whose parents are on drugs, these kids grow up from the time that they're toddlers finding their own food because their parents don't, or their, their, their parent usually um, doesn't even think about feeding them. And people, they survive. I mean, they are resourceful. They go and find the food. Growing into Christian maturity in one sense is the most natural thing in the world. And we have to, we have to like, like, like suppress that growth. You know, like coffee, drinking coffee as a kid that stunts your growth. I don't know if that really does it, but you know, you've heard that, right? Like you know, we, have, we have to do things that stunt our growth or we will grow into maturity. So in one sense, take a deep breath and realize that you are growing into maturity. Don't have, avoid it. The second way that we grow is recognizing that God has given us gifts to grow. This passage in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, he gave gifts, these pastors, teachers, apostles, prophets, to both teach 
And the pastoral aspect there, walk alongside. It's like a shepherd. To walk alongside you. And so you have these dual aspects of pastoring and teaching that is both the teaching of the word. Paul says, I was a teacher to you even though I didn't know you. I never met you. I didn't see you. You have benefited from my teaching and I continue to write to you. But then there's also ministers they send to him, to them, like Timothy and uh, Epaphras, to walk alongside them and, and to shepherd them. And one way you can stunt your growth is by not doing the natural things that God has provided for us. And the first thing that comes to mind for all of us or should come to mind is the weekly teaching in the gathering for worship. This is a place where you are fed very naturally. That's why God set the day apart and said, this is a day of rest. I've given it to you so that part of that day can be given to hearing the teaching. He doesn't ask something extra of you. It's just the natural part. Attend to the gifts. But now here's, here's something, just a little side note on this. Understand that not all teachers are good teachers. And what Paul is addressing over and over again is giving people the powers of discernment, this mark of maturity, to identify the good teachers, the true teachers from the false teachers. To identify the true teachers from the false teachers. The shepherds, he says in another place, from the wolves. For the shepherd is the one who will come and defend his sheep and lay down his life and defend the sheep with his whole being. The wolves are the one when things get a little tough and food's short, kills the sheep and eats them for himself. Now listen, this is a tough thing to preach on because even as a pastor, we all have mixed motives. You know, I get anxious about finances, year-end giving. I get anxious about these things. You know, I've never been tempted in, in the way of stealing from the church or something. And by the way, I'm tempted in other ways. I'm not putting myself above something. But, but that, that's not something I've, I've dealt with. But still, pastors are called to this life of suffering for the sake of their congregation to lay down their life for the sheep knowing that that suffering is for a reason, for the building up of Christ. But you as a congregation, you as individuals now here, because you won't always be under the same person's teaching, need to understand how to identify a shepherd from a wolf. The wolves are the ones who come and enter into the profession, enter into the teaching for their own glory, and fill themselves up at the expense of others. It doesn't mean that a pastor should not get a fair wage, even live a, a rel relatively comfortable life at times. At other times, pastors might be in want. Paul made tents for a living to supplement his income because he didn't want to be a burden to those people who were her first hearing the gospel. But back to the original point here, being able to discern the sheep, the shepherd from the wolf. 
Understand that those shepherds, those good shepherds, God has given those people as gifts to equip you to understand who Christ is and what we are called to do. The third thing I want you to see, how we grow into maturity. The final thing is that we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of growing up. I think that the thing that stands in the way of most of us wanting to grow up is a fear of responsibility. What if God gave me responsibility over this thing? What if God gave me responsibility over these people or this significant resource or or this company or this army or this whatever it is? And a lot of people want the glory associated with the power. And they pursue that glory. But how many of us really want the responsibility to care for the people that are involved in doing those things? For the maturity that's described in the Bible is not about the glory. It's about about the responsibility. It is about the living of our lives for the sake of others. It's the understanding that we have been made in this life to enjoy God and that he has called us into significant responsibility. He has entrusted to us. That's what Paul says. God gave me a stewardship. And God has given every single one of you in this room a stewardship. Whether you are 50 or 10. Whether it is over people who you are responsible for their wages and their training and their well-being. Or whether you're responsible for cleaning up your room. God has given you a stewardship. But what he's given you to steward, he has given you this great assurance that he will not make you steward it alone. He has called us as a church to walk alongside one another, strengthen one another, encourage one another. Paul says he wants them to be encouraged knowing that he is doing his thing, his body part as a steward. He wants them to be encouraged to do their thing. When we do our thing, other people should be encouraged. When other people do their thing around us, we are encouraged. And we can have just as much fun in maturity, in fact, more fun with a mature life, a maturity in faith and practice that takes on the responsibility than we can have when we sit on the sideline and scoff at other people or sit on the sideline and say, I really don't want to do that. Or flub some of our responsibilities so that people won't ask us to do other things later on. 
The maturity that Christ has called us to is a maturity that is beautiful in the way that it works together and that the church flourishes. Do you know your gifts? Some of you he's called to be teachers, pastors. But not all of us. If all of us were teachers and pastors, a lot of other things would not get done. Close with this thought. Did you catch this phrase? Paul wants them to reach the riches. To reach the riches of full assurance of understanding. The knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. The riches are found in Christ. The riches in this life are experienced in our assurance of salvation. Our steadfastness in the face of false teaching and even questionable situations in life. Our courage in decision making and our firmness of faith. One of the sure ways that we won't achieve this, but one of them is inactivity. If we just sit on the sideline, think I'm not gonna make any mistakes here, we never have an opportunity to grow in maturity. On the flip side of that, there is an overactivity. An constant activity of spiritual practice in life. We're always doing church things and never really understands who Jesus has called us to be. More importantly, who Jesus is himself. That's so busy. Never has time to sit down with Jesus to understand that Jesus doesn't love you for all the things you do. Jesus loves you because he's made you. And he's called you. And he's made you to know him. And he knows and loves you in every way. Let's pray. Father, will you give us this hope of glory, an assurance of your love your steadfastness, that we would have a vision for this maturity that we would long for. That you would strengthen us to enter into these difficult places in life oftentimes and to know your security, security that comes from you so that we can extend that to others. Will you unite us as an individual church here and also with churches around this city, we would see your body grow into a full maturity, a full functioning health with you as our head, Jesus, and each of us knowing our roles in your body. Will you grow us in maturity and grow us in numbers? that this maturity would overflow into evangelism, 
knowing our neighbors, loving those who are outside of your kingdom, and that many would hear your gospel, see it, and believe. And Lord, we ask you that you would strengthen us for this by the power of your spirit that lives in us. By the union of Christ, union with Christ that we have, we ask in his name. Amen.